Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we this morning begin to look at the consequences of sin and your response to sin, help us to identify as those in need of your merciful response. I pray, Lord, that we would not think of Adam and Eve as some distant people this morning, but we would think of them as us. That we would know that without Christ, we are in Adam. So every response that he has is our response. Lord, give us that, 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 that sense this morning. But even more so, Lord, let us see your glory and your grace, and your majesty, your mercy, and your response. Adam, may you be glorified this morning as we seek to understand who you are better. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we saw uh, as we began to study Genesis, and we were in chapter 1 during those first six days of creation, that God was, was already preparing creation for a future where the man and woman would not be in the garden. If you'll remember, when we looked at uh, the fourth day, the sun and the moon and the stars were set in their places to help measure months and years and holy days and feasts. Those feasts that were meant for a post-fall world. More importantly, we see in the New Testament that the eternal plan from before time began, before creation was spoken into existence, the eternal plan was Christ's redemption of the church. We just sang that from beginning to end, Christ the story, his glory. That was the purpose of creation. We see this in, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, the church, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even, look at verse 4, even as he chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. We saw that in the, the, the uh, text that, that John read for us as, as well. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, of course, there's, there's no need for Christ, the last Adam, the new and better Adam, no need for him to redeem anyone if the first Adam succeeds in his calling. Before the foundation of the world, God had the church and the means through which he would redeem the church already planned. So it should not surprise us to find little hints of this future redemption 
in seed form in our Genesis text. Look also what we see in, in, in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Remember, this was before the foundation of the world. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the, ri- the riches of his grace. So, so, so it's not just the eternal plan of God that was known from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world, but the gracious nature, the gracious character of God was there as well. We should also expect to see that at the very beginning in Genesis. And we do. We see both of these in our passage this morning. We see the the character of God, the grace of God, and we also see the plan of God as we observe the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. So here's how we're going to to arrange this this morning. I'm just going to go verse by verse through the text. But you will see in the text, in our passage, two kind of columns of truths that we can divide things up into, two basic columns. In one column, we're going to see the natural consequences of sin. And so because of the natural consequences of sin, we're going to see a need for God's greater plan to come. And then secondly, in the second column, you're going to see God's character, the gracious and merciful nature of God. So if you are a note taker and you desire to separate things into those two columns, feel free. It is of my opinion that you do not have to take notes in order to absorb God's word. Uh, but if, if you're of that persuasion, feel free. So Genesis 3.8, though, is the first column stuff, that the natural consequences of sin. Look, at with, look with me at, at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And before we get into this, I want you to remember the setting that this is. This garden is not just a garden, remember. It is a garden sanctuary, a holy place. In the garden, man and woman are in the very presence of God. The fact that God walks there is a clue. Right? So throughout Scripture, there are a handful of places where God walks. We'll see God walking with his people again in the camp in Israel. That is meant for us to be an echo of Eden. God will walk with his people ultimately, eternally, in the new creation, the fulfillment of Eden. But for now, don't forget that this is what Eden is. It is the Holy of Holies. It is that place where God dwells with man. But... As a result of sin, the man and his wife are hiding. They're hiding from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, there are three natural consequences of sin that we see here in their actions. The first is that sin causes us to dread God. Second, sin causes us to diminish God. The third, sin causes us to desecrate God's gifts. So let's talk about dreading God first. We see that here. When I say dread, I don't mean simple fear. Fear of God is good. Fear of God is the right response to God. It is the beginning of wisdom. An ongoing, holy, right, reverent fear of God would have kept Adam from sin. There is a right, reverent fear that responds to who God is in himself. This is the fear that God's people should have. Jesus had this fear. We see that in Isaiah 11. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Jesus had that fear. But there is another fear. A a dread. It's the fear that a guilty sinner experiences when he is in God's presence. The guilt of the man and his wife introduced to them, the guilt that they felt introduced to them this dreadful fear of God's judgment. And so, dreading God, they hid from God. But that hiding from God 
shows us something else that sin has done to them. Not only do they dread God now, but sin has corrupted their view of God, of who He is. Because of their sin, Adam and Eve have diminished in their own minds and then in their own hearts their view of God. A right heart before God knows this. There is no way to hide from God. Psalm 139 reveals this to us. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall hide me, shall cover me. The light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you. This is David singing a song of worship. And he's acknowledging who God is, isn't he? As he responds to God in worship. He knows who God is. A heart that has been renewed, a mind that is being renewed after the Lord has a clear mind about who God is. But we cannot think of God in this way. We cannot worship God like this, like David did, when we are in sin. Sin corrupts our theology. In our sin, we diminish God. We shrink Him. We think of Him less holy, less powerful, less present than He truly is. In our sin, we think we can actually hide from Him. Think of the foolishness of that. Hiding from the omnipresent creator of the universe. It's impossible. It's worse even than thinking that we can hide from ourselves. And yet, that is exactly where our sin leads us. Think of the way that we see Jonah doing this. Right? Jonah... God calls Jonah, go to Nineveh, and immediately in in the book of Jonah, he responds to God uh, in in disobedience. And again and again, the text tells us Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. But what is the story all about? Jonah, you can't get away from God. I wouldn't even say that when you read the book of Jonah that, that God followed Jonah. Wherever Jonah went, God was already there. He could not escape God. Neither can we. And yet because of our sin, the way that sin corrupts our minds and corrupts the way that we think about God and distorts what we think about God, we begin to think, well, if I can't see him, he can't see me like a toddler, right? We, we increase our estimation of ourselves and we decrease our estimation of God. Sin naturally diminishes our view of God. The last natural consequence of sin is the the misuse or the desecration of God's gifts. We see this when they hide, Adam and Eve hide from God among the trees of the garden. God planted those trees as a gift to them. Those trees are meant to provide sustenance to Adam and Eve. They were a sign of his abundant provision. But what do they do with that good gift? They use God's good gifts as instruments of concealment and escape. See it? Hid among the trees of the garden. Brothers and sisters, we do this too, don't we? We hide from our responsibilities, we hide from our calling with the very gifts that God has given us. Think of how many workaholics use the good gift of work and a good job, and they hide from their responsibilities inside of that gift. Think of how many of us use the excuse of our families to hide from our responsibilities to one another as a church. Think of how often we even hide from God 
in the church. Oh, God, I'm serving you. I'm doing this such and such in the church. But we're, what are we doing? We're, we're hiding from him. We're concealing. We, we take God's good gifts and we hide in them. And we also use God, good, God's good gifts, God's good gifts to escape as well. Think of how we do this. Entertainment, for instance, or alcohol. There's nothing inherently evil about the substance of alcohol. In fact, the Bible teaches us that it is a good gift from God. Look at the, the good word for Israel as they go into the promised land. Deuteronomy 7.13 He will love you, bless you, multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. See what God is doing? He's promising his people, I'm going to bless your grain. I'm going to bless the, 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 the flow of wine in your land. I'm going to bless the flow of oil in your land. The, the abundance of wine in the promised land is a gift from God. But in sin, what does sin do? We corrupt it. We will use God's good gifts to escape. And so alcohol through drunkenness becomes a means to escape. This is a desecration of God's good gift. It's a misuse of his blessing. Escaping God among the trees of the garden or the vine. Sin causes us to dread God. It causes us to diminish God and to desecrate his gifts. And all of that happens before God even responds. Do you see that? Did you notice that? Verse 8 is before verse 9. There, there is built into creation itself, built into the, the moral framework of humanity, the soul and the mind of humanity, the way that God made us, there is a natural corruption because of the effect of sin. And this corruption of sin in us is as sure as gravity itself. What happens when you drop a glass onto the kitchen floor? It breaks. What happens when you sin against your creator? Your soul breaks. This is natural law. This is the way that God has made us. So even before God responds to the sin of Adam and Eve, already they have been corrupted by it. And we see that corruption in those the diminishment of God, the dread of God, the desecration of his gifts. Let's move on to verse 9, though. And if you're columnizing this, this will be second column stuff. Verse 9 and following is mostly uh, looking at the nature and character of God. So verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man. Now stop right there. Because friends, already just in those eight words, we see hope. But the Lord God called to the man. I want you to so I want to show you something beautiful about this. Look at the language that the Spirit is using to, to show us God's response. He doesn't say, but God, does he? He says, but the Lord God. Now, do you remember what we learned about capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? This is God's covenant name. And in that language, Yahweh. We are reminded of who God is. His name, his covenant name, we will learn later in Exodus, means I am. He is existence itself. So, already built into that, there, there's no hope of escaping him. There was never any chance that Adam and Eve would be able to escape him because he is I am, the one who exists. You cannot get away from the one who perfectly exists. But the covenant name for God means more than I am. The name of God is identified with the character of God. We see this in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord, the Lord. And who is he? Who is this Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? He is a God 
merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is who the Lord, capital L, is. So when Moses writes this for us in Genesis 3-9, but the Lord, God, called out to the man, God's people. Remember, this, this book of Genesis was written for them first. God's people, Israel, whenever they heard that, whenever they read Genesis, they would have read it this way. But God, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, called out to the man. That is what is imported into God's name. All of that knowledge about God is packed into his name. That's who he is. We see that again, something very similar to this in Ephesians chapter 2, much later on in redemptive history. And you, Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you and me, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Who's that? It's us in Adam. Pretty well describes Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Carried, they were carried out, They they, they were carried away by the desires of the body, the desires of the mind. They are the very origin of disobedience. But what does Ephesians 2 verse 4 say? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved. You see what Paul's doing here in Ephesians? By describing God's character, he is describing in long form what the name of God, the Lord, represents in short form. In other words, what Paul is doing in Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy, when he's creating this sharp contrast between the character of man and, and who we are in Adam and the character of God, What Paul is doing by describing God's character there, Moses is doing the same thing in Genesis 3.9 when he uses God's covenant name. This is the hopeless situation that Adam and Eve have gotten themselves into. Sin, hiding, all of the natural consequences of sin. But God, which God, the Lord God, who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love, is about to respond. So the Lord God calls out to the man. And do you already see the beginning of hope and grace here? You you see the character of God here? Because Israel would have seen it when they heard that name spoken. And when we see that capital L, Lord, we know that we're about to see some mercy and some grace and some steadfast love because that's who God is. So it should not surprise us that though God could have smote them immediately as soon as they, they eat from, had eaten from that tree, they, there could have been a poof of smoke and some, a little burning on the ground. Some ashes left over, but we don't see that. Because why? Because this is the Lord God, and he is patient. The Lord God is merciful. The Lord God is gracious and abounding in steadfast love. He is slow to anger. And so his response is, man, where are you? Now, does the Lord know where the man is? Even, even the, if you taught this in four-year-old Sunday school, the kids would say, yes, the Lord knows. Where, the, even kids know that God knows where Adam is. But what the Spirit is showing us here is that in his grace, God seeks the man. 
The man does not seek God. In his sin, he cannot seek God. And that is the reality of humanity from Genesis 3 all the way through to the end. Romans 3, 10 through 11, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Rather, God of grace, the Lord God, shows his love in that even while the man and the woman have rebelled against God, even while they are hiding in the garden, fleeing from God's presence, the God of grace seeks out and calls the sinner. Where are you? Notice also what God is doing here. He's not only calling graciously to the sinner. He's also putting right the disorder that the serpent has caused. Remember, the disorder. We've talked about this a few weeks in a row. The serpent went to the woman. The serpent deceived the woman. The woman gave to the man, and the man disobeyed God. It was an inversion of the order that God had made things. So God, in seeking to restore the order of his creation, goes to the man. Why? Because the man is responsible for the keeping of the garden. The man is responsible for the care of his family. God goes to the man because the man is the one who is first accountable for what has taken place. God's not making a mistake here. He's setting right what has what disorder has been brought in. Brothers, just real quick word, do not overlook this. When sin corrupts your family, regardless of who sinned, whether it's your wife, or your kids, or you, God holds you accountable. You are the head. You are accountable for what goes on. God will hold you accountable. Well, God initiates. God calls to the man. This is why we begin our worship service this way. Call to worship. God calls us from his word. We respond. That's what we see here. God initiates. The man responds. And look at his response in verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Why does the man say he's afraid? I mean, our thought would be, well, because he sinned against God. He fears the death that is to come. That would make sense. That's not what he says. He says he's afraid because he's naked, and that's why he hid. Now, hold on, because I know we've separated this text into two weeks. But hasn't he got his loincloth thing on? Look, look back at verse 7 from last week, which is before verse 8 and 9 and 10. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So sure enough, he's not naked in the literal sense because he's got his figgies on, right? He knows. He knows, though, he knows before God, he is still naked. He's still naked. Prior to breaking covenant with God, Adam had a covering on him. Adam had God's covenant covering on him. And that covering was so perfect, so complete, that Adam was clothed by God. He had no shame before God, even when he had no physical clothes on. But now, he has disobeyed God. And no matter what Adam puts on, he's still naked. Adam could sew a thousand fig leaves together and cover his entire body three times over, He'd still be naked before God. Being in covenant union with God is the cover for our nakedness. And nakedness throughout Scripture is a, a metaphor. It's real here. He's truly naked. But it's also a metaphor for our mortality. This is why we see uh, Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at the, the, the way that Paul talks about nakedness. For in this tent we groan talking about our current life in Christ, this side of, uh, of, of Christ's return. In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found 
naked. See what he's saying? He's saying, even clothes in this life, we are still naked until we are with the Lord and we are clothed by him with new heavenly bodies. So Christian, listen, today, even in Christ, even with the blood of Christ covering our sin, we still are looking forward to our new bodies to be made whole. Christ has guaranteed that we will receive those bodies. But even in Christ, our hope is not in today. Today, we still walk around with Adam's naked flesh. In Christ, our hope is in the resurrection when we are given new bodies, heaven-made bodies, bodies not made out of dust, bodies that are not mortal, and that is ultimately God's solution to our nakedness. Well, Adam doesn't know about that yet, but he still knows he's naked. Even though he has no clue about that coming reality, that new body that we will receive that we know about, somehow Adam still knows he's naked, even with those fig leaves on him. And that's why he hides. He, had, he senses in himself this cosmic shift that has taken place from going fully clothed in happy covenant with God, even without clothes on, to naked and separated from God with man-made clothes on. Well, like any good interrogator, like the best of them, better than all of them, God knows full well how Adam would answer that question. God knows why Adam has hidden himself, but his interrogation allows us to see something, doesn't it? And it allows Adam to come to the, the realization of the consequences of his sin. God is showing Adam that, Adam, you're experiencing that guilt, you're experiencing that shame because you've brought this on yourself. And then God brings that out further with his next questions. Look at verse 11. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So this is a rhetorical question, isn't it? Nobody told Adam that he was naked. That's what God is teaching him. No one had to tell you this, Adam. This sudden awareness of shame and guilt before God does not require an external teacher. Sin has brought this in you. This shame, this guilt is not a societal construct, is it? It's not a cultural cue that Adam is picking up on, oh, I should feel shameful here. This is the natural consequences of sin. Only one thing could bring about this type of knowledge and realization to Adam, and that one thing is disobedience to God. God is showing Adam that his nakedness and his shame have come from breaking covenant with God. Who told you you were naked? Did you disobey me? Right? This disobedience is what told you you were naked. Well, now the ball's back in Adam's court, and he has the opportunity to confess his sin. God asked him a straightforward question Did you disobey me? And he has the opportunity to confess his sin and repent. What would that look like? Yes, Lord, I disobeyed. I disobeyed you. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. That would be the, 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 uh, the repentant response. He only needs to say three words, really. Yes, forgive me. Yes, I did disobey. But those three words do not come naturally. To anyone, not anyone in Adam's line. Those three words, yes, forgive me, don't come naturally. What comes naturally to a heart in rebellion against God is exactly what we see in verse 12. Verse 12, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave fruit of the tree, I ate. That answer, we're going to see here, this reveals, if you're looking at those columns, this reveals one more natural effect of sin. In our lives. Another truth for column one. We've already seen how sin uh, and guilt causes us to, to dread God and to diminish God and to desecrate his gifts. It also disrupts our relationships. Suddenly, the woman, who you remember just a, a chapter ago, who brought this 
tender song of love to Adam's heart when she was given to him, she is no longer flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, at least not in his sinful estimation of her. Now she is the woman, the woman you gave to be with me. She's problem number one, and God is problem number two because he introduced her into Adam's happy little world. You see the disruption that sin has brought into Adam's relationships? He has now distanced himself from his wife where they were once one flesh. Now she is other. You felt this before, married folks. When things are good, there is, it seems like there is nothing that could come between your oneness as a couple. Nothing. We are inseparable, literally attached at the hip. Things are perfect. But then what happens? You sin or she sins. And suddenly, sin brings division. It brings separation. Suddenly, you are enemies. You're not even neutral anymore. You've gone from perfectly one and loving to, like, enemies. They are the reason for the problem. Whatever the problem is, that's what sin does. Knowing that this is a result of sin, here's some marriage counseling for you. Recognize that. Repent of it quickly and return to oneness. There's nothing worse than living in the same house or sleeping in the same bed as your enemy. So, knowing that sin has brought that division, repent of sin, confess your sin, and be reconciled move on. You've got the rest of your life to live as one. You don't want to do that as enemies. But not only does sin disrupt Adam's relationship to his wife, it also disrupts his relationship with God. He's separating himself from God here. Adam complains that something good that God gave him is the cause of his sin. This goes back to desecrating those gifts, doesn't it? The woman you gave me, she's the cause of what happened here. But that's not true, is it? God's good gifts are not the cause of our sin. Let me say that again. God's good gifts to you are not the cause of your sin. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God's good gifts are not the cause of your sin. Where did Adam's sin come from? James continues for us. Each person is tempted. Adam is tempted. Dustin is tempted. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Who is the cause of his own sin? Adam is. Adam is. And who is the cause of her own sin? The woman is. And so, knowing that she has also sinned, brought about by her own sinful desires, God then turns to the woman. She gets her own interrogation. And this shows us, sisters... That though your husband is the head of your household and is firstly accountable to what happens in the family, you also are held responsible for your own sin. God's hierarchy of of governance does not absolve you of accountability. Let me see that with with Eve. Look at Genesis 3.13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, we looked at this last week. This is true. She did sin, but her sin came as a result of deceit, which brought about sinful desires. The serpent did deceive her. That's repeated throughout Scripture. She did eat of the tree. We know that for sure. And honestly, there's not a whole lot more that we could say or see that we didn't see last week. God doesn't make much of a fuss about her response either. There's not a further back and forth. He simply turns from Eve to the serpent. The woman said the serpent deceived her. Let's address the serpent. Now, I want you to notice here as we move into verse 14. 
we see something of the nature and character of God here. He has given the woman and the man due process, as it were. We could call it that, right? He's giving them an opportunity to speak in response, as, as we should when someone has sinned against us. He does not do that for the serpent. The serpent is not given the opportunity to, to answer for his actions. Look at, at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. To the woman, he said, what is this you have done? To the serpent, he says, because you've done this. He treats the serpent differently than he treats the man and the woman. I think there's a number of reasons for this. In his sovereignty and in his wisdom, God does not permit the serpent to speak. He knows the serpent through and through. The Lord God knows that no good can come from allowing the serpent to speak. If Adam will not keep the serpent silent, God himself will do it. Where Adam fails in dominion, God himself will retain his right to rule over all things rightly. So God is showing us here that he is ruling over the serpent, that he is sovereign over the serpent, which is good news to us. He is not, the serpent is not an equal with man and woman. He is lower than them. But he's also showing us that the serpent is under judgment when he keeps the serpent silent. So that God's judging act of the serpent has begun already by not allowing him to speak. Also notice this. When God was questioning Adam and Eve, he was quest- asking them questions, but he was also teaching them, wasn't he? The questions were meant to teach them. God already knew the answers to the questions. Adam and Eve needed to work their way through it. There is nothing to teach the servant. He's not teachable. There is no rehabilitating that can be done to the serpent. And so God moves immediately to judgment for him. And the pronouncement of judgment over him is what we see in verse 14. Because you've done this, no questions, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Now, the, the serpent is cursed by God for a couple of reasons. First, because he has subverted God's order and deceived the woman. The man and the woman will not be cursed by God. We'll see that later on. We'll see that in their judgment next week, they are not cursed. But just as a, as a preview, in, in order to wrap our heads around this, one cannot be both blessed and cursed by God. Right? Either you live in his blessing or you live under his curse. Those are mutually exclusive. Though Adam and his wife have sinned, they've broken covenant with God, they will remain under God's blessing. And what is his blessing? Go back to chapter 1. The blessing is fruitful multiplication. They are still in that blessing from God. And that blessing of be fruitful and multiply will be passed down, as we'll see, from Adam to Seth, all the way down to Noah, all the way down to Abraham, And that's the rest of Genesis, really. The blessing of fruitful multiplication will eventually lead to the redemption of mankind. The serpent, though, is cursed. He's cursed for subverting God's order. He's cursed for uh, rebelling against God and trying trying to deceive or, or harm humanity. He's cursed, and his curse is twofold. The first we see here is humiliation. The second is defeat. The punishment fits the crime. After all, God is just. God humiliates, brings the the serpent to humiliation, and he shows a future defeat. The humiliation we see in verse 14, the serpent will be beneath all the other animals. Cursed are you above, above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So the serpent attempted to thwart God's creation order. God, man, woman, beast. He attempted to rule over the man, to move above the man by deceiving the woman, causing the man's downfall. God says, no, 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 no. Because you've done this, you're now lower than everything. You're already beast. Now you're the lowest of the beasts. You were created as the craftiest of the beasts of the field. You had some distinction. You had some privilege. Now you are cursed. Now you're humiliated all the way down, down, down at the bottom of all beastly things. On the ground, there's no lower. On the ground you shall go. You'll be so low, so low, serpent, 
nothing will be lower than you. You'll be so low that you won't even eat other plants or animals. There will be no sense in which you are above anything. Even your food will be dust. You'll be eating dirt all the days of your life. That's how low. You see, you see the bottom of the bottomest bottom that the serpent has been sent to? Abject humiliation. His attempt was to get above humanity. He's been sent below even the lowest of the animals. Abject humiliation. That's not the end of his curse. Second part comes in verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. He's saying this, you deceived the woman once because she didn't know who you were. It will not happen like that again. Now she will know that you are her enemy. When God says, I will put enmity between you, it's saying that you will know that she's your enemy. She will know that you're her enemy. Her children will know that you are her enemy. And her children will know that your children are their enemies. Forever. You will not deceive her again. She will know not to listen to you. There's a little twist here, though. That's not the only issue that we're seeing. The second part of the judgment is not plural. Did you notice that? Look again at the second clause of verse 15. It's not just enmity between the woman and her kids uh, and, and the serpent and his kids. Look at that second clause, verse 15. He, singular, he. That is, there is one offspring in particular that will be a problem for you, serpent. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel, which is to say you will strike him, but he will crush you. Though you have made yourself an enemy of God and an enemy of humanity, the seed of the woman will triumph over you. You will be defeated. And it is in this judgment from God upon the serpent that we see hope. There's a hint that even though death comes through disobedience, that's not the end of the story. There's mercy here. There's hope in a future salvation. Let me draw that out a little bit as, as, we, as we begin to close. Genesis 2, verse 16 through 17, this is what God had said about the tree. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So what's supposed to happen? They're supposed to die. The wages of sin are death. Adam ate of the tree that God commanded him not to eat, Adam will surely die. Adam has brought the death that comes through sin, and that will become very clear in chapter 4, all throughout the rest of Genesis. But in verse 15, in 315, there's a little glimmer of light. There's hope that death is not the end of the story. There will come one, the offspring of the woman. He will crush the serpent. That's good news enough that in his mercy, God will allow the woman to at least live long enough to have offspring. So death will not be immediate. You see that? There's hope there. Death is not immediate. God's redemptive plan will move forward. But could it also be, could it also be that the death of the serpent At the heel of this offspring, the death that the serpent had invited the man and his his wife into, that death will be destroyed? Will the death of the serpent lead to the death of death? There's a question there, isn't there? Introduced here. There's this little kernel of hope built in to God's judgment. Because of this little inkling, of the coming Christ, the early church called this verse the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first little dose of good news, the first promise that something good, something better was to come. And notice, friends, this comes before God judges the man and woman. 
this hope, this gospel hope, will brighten and color and shade how they hear God's judgment when it does come. Judgment will surely come. But it is the judgment of a merciful God. It is the judgment of a gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Adam knows that this hope is there. After all of the judgment that is to come, and we'll see this soon, the man renames his wife Eve because she was to be the mother of all living. Adam is hearing this. I'm not making this up. Adam is hearing the hope built in to God's judgment. And this is not, friends, this is not to minimize God's judgment. Though he is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love, though he is a forgiving God, he will by no means clear the guilty. The iniquity of Adam will be passed down through all generations. I was born with the iniquity of Adam. The babies in here today have the iniquity of Adam. But in God's judgment, there is hope. Hope that is one day to be realized in Christ. And for us, this is a good reminder of who God is, isn't it? Even in our sin, even before we sinned, God had Christ already covering our sin. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, though, I want you to just see how good Jesus is in this this morning. Because you are, all, you are in the same position as Adam. A sinner under the wrath of God, bound for God's judgment, in desperate need of God's mercy. But friend, God has shown you in himself and in Christ his mercy. God has shown his mercy and his love toward you. God's judgment, his wrath towards sin has been taken by Christ. And so God is calling out to you this morning, where are you? You who are hiding, the Lord is seeking you out. He's calling to you even in your sin, even in your rebellion, even in your attempt to cover your sin. He's calling to you, where are you? So, friend, hear his call for repentance. Hear his call to faith. Hear the love in his voice. Hear the mercy in his call. And, friend, repent. Receive Christ. This is who our good Lord is.